If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, all right. TGI Fridays, can you believe it? What in a week it's been. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. This is TNT Today's News Talk. You're listening live and direct, or you're watching live and direct. We're on the video streams now as well. You probably figured that out. Some of you this week on YouTube, Rumble, we've got live streams on other platforms as well. I believe Odyssey as well has got a live stream running for TNT, so you can watch us as well as listen to us. As I warned you earlier in the week, I hope you're not watching us while you're driving. Please uh, keep it on the audio if you can. We don't want to be responsible for any t- tickets or anything like that or heaven forbid worse listen ladies and gentlemen we got a lot to ground to cover today there's a lot that's gone on over the overnight we'll try to touch on some of the breaking developments on a number of key stories plenty domestically in the u.s plus internationally middle east of course we're going to be joined by our middle east correspondent very trusted source on the ground Layla hatoum is going to join us in the first hour for the latest on what's happened the escalation in Lebanon is disturbing to say the least. What's going to happen in terms of retaliation by Hezbollah? Is this going to escalate? Also, Yemen and Allah, or as they called the Houthis by the West, have interdicted not one but two ships. So they've disrupted shipping uh, in the Gulf of Aden, the Babel Mendem Straits, into the Red Sea. What's this going to mean? Certainly for Israel, this is a headache. Uh, and it won't be confined to them either before long. Anybody that's participating in the war effort is probably going to get a visit from Ansar Allah on the high seas. That's going to be a big game changer. It also means that if you're shipping, uh, if you're flagging an Israeli vessel, or you've got Israeli cargo, you might have difficulty getting insurance maritime insurance just saying that's probably going to be a problem so it's going to add to the cost of a lot of things but more than that it's sending a strong message to the israelis that there are other countries uh, that do not approve of the war crimes that are going on in gaza speaking of war crimes there's moves afoot filed with the international criminal court now the case being pushed personally by a British MP. We'll talk about that probably in the second hour uh, as well. That's kind of a breaking development, which we're pleasantly surprised. Is it going to be enough? Maybe not nearly, but the real action is going to be with the invocation of the Genocide Convention, which most countries have signed, ratified that treaty. So it's actually law. Uh, and least of all, there's a number of European countries that look like they're pre- being prepared uh, to move on that basis. All it's going to take is one country uh, to file that through the International Courts of Justice, and then basically it goes right up to the top of the international law food chain at the UN level, and then we may have some we may have some movement on this. Uh, after all, if you're going to be waiting for the United States, Jake Sullivan gave the most embarrassing press conference with the Israeli defense minister, Yoav Gallant, who himself is probably going to end up in a Nuremberg trial at some point if he makes it uh, in in the coming years. That's just the reality. Jake Sullivan had to stand up there while Gallant was saying, oh, we're glad you're here standing with us and we're going to do X, Y, and Z to these Palestinians. We're not done yet. We're going to crush Gaza and so forth. Okay. It's basically what he's articulating there. If you read between the lines, look at what's happening on the ground. We have the latest numbers from Euromed. 
Oh, Euromed, humanitarian organization, 25,000 dead Palestinians as of yesterday. And that's roughly 10,000 children included in that number. Uh, many less women, I would say probably about uh, five to 6,000 women, and then the rest are men. Uh, and they're not Hamas. Okay. So that's 25,000. Notice you're not hearing anything. We commented on this with Basil yesterday. Notice how they're not talking about the death toll anymore. It's almost like been blackballed out of the Western media. Have you noticed that? That's why we're saying that 25,000, 25,000, 25,000 dead, unarmed, innocent civilians. Yeah. Yeah. And Israel still hasn't come forward and given a list of how many, quote, Hamas high-value targets that they've neutralized. They haven't done that. Why haven't they done that? Is that because they haven't neutralized any? Just saying, has Hamas or the resistance factions on the Palestinian side taken any casualties? Probably. There has been heavy fighting between the Israeli military and the Palestinian resistance factions. And there's multiple factions. They're not. It's not just Hamas. Okay. See, al Qassam brigades... Al-Aqsa Martyr Brigades, it's the uh, PFJ, it's the PFL, the, P, the PFIJ, and also Islamic Jihad as well. So there's multiple resistance groups, okay? They have taken casualties. I don't know those numbers. But the official Israeli numbers keep going. They seem to be getting lower and lower, which is strange. Uh, after you've, how many, over, I don't know how many hundreds of uh, potential casualties, they're saying 110 or something. That's the official Israeli number. Well, how, how is that possible when you have up to over 100 military vehicles have been destroyed or, or neutralized? Heavy fighting. So I, real numbers, as we said yesterday, and by the way, just, just as we said that yesterday, um, an admission comes out in the Israeli press saying exactly what we had said earlier that day. Uh, which was in Haaretz, saying that the they're hugely underestimating the number of dead Israeli soldiers. We think it's in the thousands. We think it's over 2,000. Some people are saying higher. Some people are saying four or 5,000. Okay. So we're conservatively, we're saying it's over 2,000. Uh, it's a lot more than 130. And that's what the Israeli government's letting out. That's a big deal from a public relations point of view if you want to maintain public support for an unpopular uh, war and while it might be popular to some israelis the longer this drags on the more problematic it becomes not just at home but away as well so we'll be talking about some of those aspects uh later in the first hour here uh in the second hour we're going to join join up with matthew russell lee from inner city press in new york city uh hunter biden that thing is just the tops blown right off that uh, so we've got that. He gave his story uh, out on the steps of some building in D.C. Uh, just a couple of days ago. That bombed. I think he's being held in contempt of court. Didn't show up for his sealed indictment. Matthew will give us all the inside baseball on that. Plus, the Trump might have dodged another bullet, funny enough, in the run-up to the election. They haven't been able to nail Trump with any of these trials. Isn't that strange? So who, what have they got up their sleeves? Some say that the 
biggest guns have already been fired against Donald Trump. Uh, I tend to agree with that, but there's a few more legal attacks, a few more salvos that are loaded up in the chamber of the Biden administration's DOJ uh, and the corrupt uh, judiciary in New York City led by Letitia James and also down in Fulton County in Georgia, although that one looks like it's petering out to almost nothing. So all this is happening, high drama before the primaries. How's this going to shape up? How will it affect the 20? 24 election joe biden himself impeachment impeachment's coming impeachment's coming not looking good for the democrats just in general not looking good we'll talk about some of these things with matt matthew lee he's also got an interesting juan guaido case i'm looking forward to hearing that that was the sort of um Washington appointed their own president for Venezuela. That was interesting. You remember that during the, uh, I think it was during the Trump administration. Juan Guaido, they created a president. They said, this is the president, and he's the president. They toured him around, did a kind of Zelensky tour around Washington. At the same time, the U.S. stole the state oil company, Citco, from uh, Venezuela. That was interesting. They stole all the assets of the state oil company. And they, they, they dispersed a lot of the funds to Juan Guaido. And what did Juan Guaido do with the money? Luxury, cars, uh, property, who knows? Anyway, it sort of pilfered its way out into different hands. Is that what this trial is about? I think this one's potentially actually bigger. We'll hear the inside details of this from Matthew Lee. I'm looking forward to that discussion um, as well in the second hour. So we've got a lot, a lot of big stories to cover. We'll probably push some of these uh, European stories off uh, and Middle East stories off into uh, the second hour before we hook up with Matthew Lee in New York City, our trusted legal correspondent there. Uh, we've also got a few interesting space program stories. Uh, India is well and truly in the space race. Um, everybody knows that they've pumped a lot of money and R&D and development into rocket tech. Uh, they've had a couple of not successful uh, moon landing missions, um, unmanned, of course. <laughs> Everybody's moon landing missions are unmanned for some reason after 19, early 1970s. I can't work. Nobody can work that one out. That's a bit of a strange one. But anyway, India's got their plans laid out for the next lunar mission, and they're hoping that this time they're going to hit the target. So we'll look forward to that uh, in the second hour. We'll, we'll cover that story as well. So there's a few other things. Uh, we'll leave those off for the moment. Uh, in the meantime, what we're going to do is break here with the network, and we'll connect our uh, trusted voice on the ground in the Middle East, Leila Hutum, veteran journalist who's got a lot to share with us, and a lot has happened since we last spoke to Leila, but more specifically over the last 48 hours. So we'll get an update on Gaza, Hamas, and Hezbollah, and more uh, on the other side. So stick around. We'll be right back. You should hear what Charlie Robinson is talking about. I think once we saw the supply chain issues uh, that happened during the COVID debacle, you go, well, that seems bad for the, you know, when you're fighting somebody for toilet paper, but it could be worse, right? It could be the last can of food. So people are starting to reevaluate and reassess their situations and their relationship with supply chains and the like. And I think what that does is it leads you to a place of saying, how can I make myself less dependent on the system? It's kind of hard to know where to start, right? 
right? Where would you suggest we even begin with this process? Yeah, it's funny you said that because someone said to me recently and it made me laugh that this is going to be the kind of collapse where the Burger King's still open. And I think that's what's probably lulling people into a false sense of security in that everything when we go to the city kind of appears normal unless you're in one of those really crazy drug adult cities. But for most people, I would say, Charlie, it feels normal, but it ain't normal. <laughs> the world yeah. is not normal. It's completely gone off kilter. Charlie Robinson on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. You're listening to TNT. Today's News Talk, or you might be watching TNT. Today's News Talk on our live streams on Rumble, YouTube, Odyssey, other video sharing platforms. Thank you for rejoining us, and a big thank you to everybody in our TNT chat community. The numbers are building out. I think we had a high water mark earlier this hour. We had almost 120 people in the chat room. Good to see the crowd in there, and appreciate all you guys do in terms of the links that you share, the memes, the banter, the opposition research that's what makes this show great and it makes our community thriving we're going to build that up to bigger numbers in the coming weeks as well so thank you guys for all you do in the tnt chat community we're going to shift gears right now we're going to go to the middle east and we're going to reconnect with uh, a trusted voice on the ground leila hatoum who we haven't spoke to in a couple of weeks and a lot has happened since we last spoke to Layla. we've covered some of those developments but in specifically a lot has happened in the last 72 hours and on multiple fronts. So we're going to really rely on uh, Layla's versatility uh, on this because she's looking at all the different aspects of this. We've got her on the live stream right now. Layla Hatoum from Beirut. How are you? I'm alive. And uh, luckily, I just came back from uh, the southern Lebanese front where basically the Israelis were bombarding all of the towns across the blue line and even beyond that. Um, recently, for the past literally uh, four hours, the Israelis have... Uh, ramped up their uh, attacks against Lebanon, whereas basically over the past 72 hours, they had basically slowed down their pace and frequency of uh, attacks. Um, Hezbollah retaliated directly and they uh, targeted Israeli soldiers um, across the Galilee Panhandle and beyond as well. So also civilians in South Lebanon, uh, this is a big problem as well, Leila. Um, how, what have the Israelis been doing in terms of targeting civilians? I know there's a number of villages in there that have taken heavy fire. And what how, what's the reaction been from the, the Lebanese side on that? 
Well, I've, I've went across the, the towns that have been bombarded over the past 72 hours, actually past almost 85 hours. And uh, I've spoken to people over there. Uh, the Israelis have been targeting not only the houses, civilian houses, but also farms. And they've killed the uh, Lebanese civilians, two Lebanese civilians and injured one as well over the past 72 hours. Um, a number of livestock were also killed by the bombardment. And uh, the thing is that the Israelis mean uh, destruction towards the civilians. They're not targeting anything that's military. They're targeting civilians, and that's it. And that's the sad part. It's against uh, international law and humanitarian laws, basically, to target civilians directly. They're also using white phosphorus, not only against olive groves, basically, and the uh, wilderness, but also uh, close by to uh, densely populated civilian areas. And that's under international law. It's uh, banned. They can claim otherwise, but all the footage is there. And basically, we do have evidence as Lebanese when it comes to their uh, attacks. They also continue to use um, their F-16s and F-35s to breach Lebanese airspace against uh, Resolution 1701. And basically, they, they fly all the way over to the capital, Beirut, and beyond uh, before uh, going back. And uh, they're using um, drones as well to throw uh, pa pamphlets, little uh, papers uh, to Lebanese civilians in South Lebanon trying to scare them away from their villages. And the Lebanese will just basically make fun of it. Um, like today, for example, they, they one of the drones uh, threw um, uh, a number of uh, papers across uh, the southern Lebanese uh, towns. And they called the Lebanese basically to, to rally against Hezbollah, who is basically polluting this uh, sacred land of Lebanon. And the thing is, if it's sacred enough, why are you bombarding it? And why are you trying to invade it? And why does your, uh, your why do the, your rabbis, including Sharpav, literally, we just saw it uh, today and yesterday, he, he was saying that all of Lebanon is ours as well, as, as well as Sinai, all the way to the Nile. So they have plans basically to take over Lebanon, but yet they call it holy uh, sacred land and it shouldn't be uh, uh, polluted by Hezbollah, who is actually part of the Lebanese uh, fabric. Yes, and also, uh, can you comment as well, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, in the previous speech, he talked about, look, we're going to have reciprocal responses. So if, you know, and they don't know, this is not normal practice from Hezbollah, they always avoided civilians uh, in any sort of conflict. But if Israel is hitting civilians, will Hezbollah respond in kind? I know this is a, a touchy touchy subject, but what's your interpretation of that in the context of what's happened this week? It's not touchy anymore. I mean, the idea, the first time the Israelis targeted Lebanese civilians after Hezbollah warned them not to do so, Hezbollah directly targeted uh, one person who was working with the logistics, in logistics with the Israeli uh, military, and they killed him, right? They killed an Israeli who was working with the military, but he was part of logistics, so he was a civilian. That pushed uh, the Israelis to recalibrate their attacks against Lebanon for some time before resuming their attacks. And uh, when they were targeting homes, Hezbollah directly retaliated and targeted homes in um, the Mutula settlement, in Shtula, and uh, basically uh, Kriyat Shmona as well. And they hit, uh, hit numerous uh, towns, uh, not towns, numerous uh, houses. It's about nine to 12 houses. And uh, that's when the Israelis had to back off and basically uh, pace their, uh, the frequency of their attacks against the Lebanese before resuming over the past four to five hours. So I think basically the moment they, they start targeting civilian areas in Lebanon, Hezbollah will retaliate directly. Over the past uh, 24 hours, Hezbollah has managed to target uh, more than uh, six um, uh, Israeli foot patrols, uh, Israeli military target uh, groupings, Israeli military headquarters and outposts as well. And they've uh, scored the uh, number of hits, basically, 
we're talking about um, three Israelis killed and over seven uh, injured uh, today alone. And basically, the, the, the day before yesterday and yesterday, we had two Israelis uh, killed and about eight injured as well. Those according to yeah. our boots on the ground. And then, and also, uh, in terms of like the settlements, uh, the Israeli settlements along the Lebanese uh, southern border, empty. Are they empty? Yes. So about twenty settlements have been emptied or completely or partially, depending on how close they are to the blue line and beyond. And don't forget that Lebanon basically considers all the land beyond the, the blue line towards a certain uh, degree, uh, part of the Lebanese occupied territories that includes the seven villages that were taken by the Israelis back in 1967. That also includes basically all the uh, settlements uh, built on, in the Galilee Panhandle. That's all Lebanese territories. Terbicha, for example, Shtula, Motulli, uh, Kriyat Shumana, those are all Lebanese territories according to Lebanon. And they are occupied by the Israelis. And uh, beyond that basically starts uh, the uh, Palestinian uh, territories. Right, so they're completely empty, and you're talking about what in terms of a population? In terms of population, you talk is that the thirty thousand, twenty thousand? What 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 sort of numbers would be evacuated? Um, the total number of those who were evacuated the first five weeks were about seventy thousand people from across mm -hmm. the settlements, and that number has been increasing. Uh, time on time on because Kriyat Shmona wasn't completely uh, evacuated. Now it's basically almost a coast town. So there were some people left uh, over the past uh, week and a half, two weeks, and they have literally brought their bags, filled them up, and then left. So you only have the mayor, I think, left in that town, and um, the Israeli soldiers have moved in. Some of the Israeli soldiers have taken over houses and turned them into outposts as well, uh, like in Matullah settlement, like in Shtula as well. So there, so those residents or those settlers, they're not coming back anytime soon. That's the I understanding, right? I don't believe so. I mean, the idea is like when when even the Israeli media uh, uh, interviewed them, they're saying at hotels or basically they took one way ticket and left the country. They all said basically we're not going back until basically Hezbollah is uh, pushed away from from uh, the border. According to them, the blue line is the border, but it is not. It's a withdrawal line according to the United Nations when the Israelis withdrew from Lebanon back in 2000. And the funny part is that um, the Israeli military and official uh, stands from what uh, what Hezbollah uh, needs to be or where, it need, where Hezbollah needs to be has changed over the past seven weeks. Remember the beginning of the war, the Israelis were saying, we're not going to stop until Hezbollah is completely eradicated. Mm -hmm. Three weeks down the line, they go like, Hezbollah needs to sit be, be, uh, towards the north of uh, the Litania River according to 1701, UN Security Council Resolution 1701. And recently they went out and said, Hezbollah needs to basically stay about six kilometers away from the borders and basically hand over its weapons, and we will be fine with that. So, like bit by bit, I think next in, in the three weeks term, if we talk to each other, the Israeli stand would be basically we're okay if Hezbollah stays in Matullah settlement and basically Ankriyat Shmona. I mean, uh, it's hilarious how they they compromise every three weeks or so. So, so this is. I just want to just round this point off, Leila, because I think it's really important to people uh, to understand that previous uh, conflicts um, in around in and around South Lebanon, you didn't have that mass evacuation, and and all this is a voluntary evacuation. People have left voluntarily because they don't feel safe. That's a big change, isn't it? In ter in terms of Israel and Netanyahu's government has always ran on this promise that they're going to protect all you know israelis and settlers and that to come from around the world come to israel will protect you but that promise is no longer valid anymore is is that is yeah, that how yeah. you you're seeing this 
Well, um, if you remember, uh, Netanyahu is good with talks. He's good with words. He just promises and it's void promises all the time. He promised them a secure state and it's never secure. We saw what happened uh, in, in the Gaza enclave settlements and we saw what happened basically across uh, the settlements uh, um, uh, opposite uh, to Lebanon. So the idea is that uh, he failed to give them security. That's one thing. In the past, as you said, some people would leave their settlements. The others would just sit around and watch how the fire would be going back and forth. Um, the, the funny part is that it's not only total evacuation for the frontline settlements and the tier, second tier settlements, but also the third tier settlements as well, all the way be, like closer to Haifa. Some people have left partially. Those are those are the, the settlements I'm saying like they were partially evacuated. They never were evacuated in the past, not over the past 30 or 40 years. And the ones that were completely evacuated or partially evacuated in the first and second tier settlements beyond the blue line, um, the Israeli uh, occupation forces actually set up uh, cement blocks. They have blocked roads to those uh, settlements so the media wouldn't be able to uh, approach certain settlements. And they have ramped up the number of soldiers in those settlements, taking over houses to create outposts for them because Hezbollah has actually completely obliterated some of their uh, outposts over there, including the command uh, ship for um, for the Northern Front. Okay, so that's that's a major change. And, you know, like, are you saying, I know that you also had on-the-ground experience in the 2006 war, if I'm not mistaken, you covered that uh, when you were a journalist there. And so are you seeing any similarities in how Israel is treating uh, South Lebanon again? Because it people have made the comment, you probably heard some of the chatter, that Israel looks like it's following some of the same behavior patterns that they did before, but maybe maybe not successfully but what what do you put this down to is this is this are they bluffing or are, have they not learned their lessons from before how how do you sort of reading this move these moves by israel well the israelis cannot go out and say that they have lost already there is a balance of terror between hezbollah and the israelis and it's more on the israeli side rather than hezbollah side hezbollah is ready for an action for action and for war they have been preparing for it since 2006 Whereas the Israelis, they are a regular army. And most of the soldiers who are fighting are aged between 18 to 25. And we see that from, from the uh, ages of those who are being killed or taken to hospital, um, uh, they're injured, right? So what nothing has changed when it comes to a regular army. They're always relying on their sky, uh, basically the, the force in the sky, air force, to, to um, uh, attack Lebanon. Sometimes few shelling here and there from their tanks across um, the blue line. But it reminds me of one thing during 2006, and the rest doesn't resemble 2006 at, at all. The first six days of the war in 2006, this, the first six days of the Israeli aggression in 2006, the Israelis literally stood by the borders, waiting, afraid if Hezbollah would basically pop up from somewhere and shoot at them. So they didn't know where Hezbollah was, and they were afraid, and that was the balance of terror. Then they moved in. Because they understood it was a fight and flight for Hezbollah as, as a group fighting as a resistance on the ground. So basically, they don't hold positions. That's, that's what allowed the Israelis to come in. This time, it's completely different. The first few weeks, we saw the Israelis not sure where to basically bombard. Should we bombard here? Maybe they retaliate. But now, basically, the Israelis have understood if they go in as an incursion, they have two problems. The first one is that Hezbollah might pop up from behind them towards the settlements and beyond. And this is what Nasrallah actually promised them. This time, he insinuated that they will go not only to Haifa, but all the way to Jerusalem. They're only waiting for the circumstances to change, which is basically either Hezbo Hamas asks for their help or the Israelis change behavior towards Lebanon. 
That's why the Israelis haven't changed their behavior towards Lebanon until now. They only stick to bombarding the southern Lebanese villages that are the first villages when it comes to the blue line. So like the first line of defense when it comes to the southern villages in Lebanon. They haven't gone beyond that, only rarely. So they haven't changed their behavior because they're afraid of what Hezbollah might do in retaliation. And the second point is that the Israelis cannot risk opening two fronts at the same time. The southern front, which is basically they're fighting Hamas, and the northern front fighting Hezbollah. And according to the people I speak on the ground, boots on the ground, I mean, I'm talking about Palestinians, Palestinians 48, and the Israelis themselves, they call Hezbollah and Hamas the terror coming from beneath. So they don't know where they're coming from. They don't know if there are basically tunnels across the, the, the northern front, but they know for a fact that Hezbollah is well prepared for it. And Hezbollah's arms are completely different than what Hamas is using. Hamas is using locally manufactured weapons. We're talking about Al-Qassam rockets and Al-Yassin 105 rockets, right? Whereas Hezbollah, they do have strategic weapons that they've acquired from Iran. They do have now attack drones that they've used the first five weeks of the war against uh, the Israelis. And at the same time, they do have strategic weapons. They can hack into drones. And we've seen part of that back in 2006. So if in 2006, they, could, they were able to hack into Israeli drones, what kind of technology do they have today? This is where the Israelis basically draw the line. That's the balance of terror. And also, I believe Hezbollah, just from the footage I've seen, they have a shoulder-mounted uh, anti-tank, the N-law equivalent of NATO, NATO standard equivalent, which is very effective in neutralizing uh, tanks from a lo from a distance and also at, uh, Apache helicopters. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. They actually introduced a new weapon that nobody knew that they had, which is Al-Burqan. It's a half a ton of explosives uh, missile that's medium range and basically it can hit accurately. Mm. So that's a that's a big difference in terms of uh, firepower that uh, Hezbollah has. So I think that kind of rules out a major ground offensive by the IDF. I just can't see. So what, what are they hoping to do, Leila? Just pr are they probing, poking, trying to expose Hezbollah positions and then hit them with airstrikes? I mean, what is the long-term strategy for Israel or do they have one? I think they got into quicksand when they went into Gaza. They didn't expect Gaza to, uh, to last for 70 days and to uh, basically inflict such uh, uh, losses against the Israelis. I mean, today we, you, you had uh, multiple uh, attacks by Hamas and ambushes against the Israelis. We had uh, 10 soldiers killed uh, at one point in the north. You have about 17 soldiers killed, killed in the central and um, central uh, Gaza Strip and uh, uh, what you call southeast uh, of uh, Gaza Strip. We're talking about east of Khan Yunus uh, city and then Jahreddik as well. The, the fights are ongoing. And if Hamas can do that on the ground, then the Israelis are basically just basically counting the days when basically they can actually reach a possible uh, agreement that shuns them the, the, the possibility of fighting against Hezbollah. That's the first basically analysis. The second analysis is that they want an all-time war where basically if Hezbollah at any point expands the, uh, the northern front, which is South Lebanon, then that's when the, uh, the Americans will come over and support um, the Israelis against Hezbollah. And we saw it in the uh, American media. I think this is kind of, um, it's like propaganda to, to uh, incite fear in the Lebanese that you shouldn't be opening the southern Lebanese front. We saw that basically the White House is saying that we are going to support the Israelis with any war that they have against Hezbollah. So either, either the Israelis want to expand that war to include the U.S. in it. So basically, they can take over Lebanese territories in the south. And that's going to be like really hard. I mean, if the Americans are smart enough, they would understand it's really hard because it's going to be another Ethiopia for them and another basically Gaza for the Israelis. 
Um, or basically the, the, the Israelis are trying to, to incite fear so that basically um, uh, Hezbollah would agree to sit down to the table of negotiations. Either way, I can tell you one thing. Uh, they tried to throw in, uh, in the media as well that um, uh, the U.S. representative, uh, um, the negotiator on behalf of the U.S., um, uh, Amos Hochstein, had brought uh, some suggestion to the table to the Lebanese that there can be land swap where the Israelis uh, can give back Shiba farms to the Lebanese as well as uh, some uh, of the territories across the blue line uh, in exchange basically of a ceasefire and Hezbollah retreats to six kilometers to 10 kilometers away from the blue line and hand over their weapons, which is very, uh, like, oh, it's not almost impossible. It is impossible because there are lots of Lebanese who hold title deeds to lands that the, the Israelis continue to occupy that are beyond what the Israelis have offered to swap. And they're, they're not offering us anything. They're just basically telling us, we return your land. It's not like they're giving us extra land be, be beneath that. We do have 13 points across the blue line that belong to Lebanon that we have contested. And beyond that, there are seven villages as well. Yeah, that, that deal doesn't sound legitimate because if you hand someone back the land, but you don't give them the ability to defend it, it's not really a deal, I think. So it's, I, I wouldn't try. Yeah. Just media talk. They're wasting time. They're trying to yeah. prolong things until they finish with, uh, with Hamas and, and Gaza. And this, this is really hard. It's proving hard for them. So if Gaza took 70 days, I think Lebanon would take basically 700 days for them. And they wouldn't even like emerge as victorious. Look what happened in 2006. And Hezbollah had half the fire, firearms and firepower that they have today. And so let's talk about Gaza for a moment, uh, Leila. Go further south there. So, you know, where is the conversation moving on this now? I mean, it, it, it. correct me if I'm wrong here, but I see the majority of the conversation, at least the probing from the media, is what are the Israeli casualties? Because this number seems to have been suppressed. Uh, I think the official number uh, from the government is something like in Gaza, 120 around there, uh, dead soldiers or something like this. Uh, what, 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 tell, tell, tell us the, tell us what you think the re, the real picture is. All right. All right. It's like when, whenever the Israelis announce a certain number, always multiplied by four to eight, four when it comes to death and basically eight when it comes to injuries. And we know for a fact that the Israelis have lost more than 500 to 600 soldiers dead once. That's aside from the mercenaries that they lost on the ground. I mean, over the past 72 hours until this morning, until Friday morning, the Israelis sustained 73 casualties, 36 killed and 37 injured. And some of those just in the last 24 dead. hours, just the last 24 hours. No, 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 I'm not talking about the last 24 hours. They had 36 killed and or injured. Right. But over the past 72, 72 hours until this morning, they have 36 killed, not killed and or injured, 36 killed and 37 injured. So almost half of those who were killed over the, uh, sorry, of those who were uh, hit over the past 72 hours, they were dead. And the other half are injured. Some of them are critically injured. So we might hear extra deaths going forward. Today alone, today alone, you had multiple deaths across the Gaza Strip from the north. We're talking from Beit Hanun all the way down to southeast, uh, basically uh, uh, Khan Yunus. And uh, the fighting uh, is ongoing. So, the, for example, Hamas had ambushed uh, Israelis' uh, uh, foot patrols basically in Beit Hanun, and they managed to kill uh, several soldiers over there. Some were injured. Um, if you look at uh, uh, Jahidik, which had so some of the most uh, vicious fights uh, the, today, um, uh, Hamas actually ambushed uh, uh, a group of uh, so Israeli soldiers as well, trying to do an incursion, and they inflicted uh, massive uh, losses uh, in terms of lives. 
And they also took uh, some uh, arms from them, from, uh, some weapons. So M16s, for example, that Hamas went out and said, like, basically, we, we managed to take uh, M16s from Israeli soldiers during the fight in Jihladik. And that's central Gaza for you. And then when you're talking about um, uh, east of uh, Khan Yunus, basically, which is basically southeast um, Gaza Strip, uh, major fights happened over there, um, several ambushes, also tanks and Merkavas were basically uh, hit, uh, armored vehicles were hit and Israeli soldiers were hit as well. The fighting is ongoing as well. Um, if you move over to the West Bank, the West Bank is also um, boiling. Jenin, of course, I mean, for the past seven weeks has been fighting along with Nablus and Tol Kerem. Uh, the fighting has moved to Bethlehem now, and um, uh, I don't know if you heard over the past uh, few hours that um, there were news uh, that uh, the resistance on the ground, the Palestinian resistance, has uh, bombed uh, uh, Jerusalem. But uh, we don't we don't have confirmation so far if it were basically the Israelis, Al Qassam brigades, or some other faction on the ground that has basically been targeting the Israelis over there. But we saw footage of people running away, and uh, we heard bombardment and use, uh, shots. Um, so we're trying to to, um, to make sure basically that uh, the information we get are correct before we go out with them. And, and so, and in terms of uh, tanks, uh, fighting vehicles on the uh, Israeli side, uh, numbers of immobilized or destroyed tanks or vehicles, it's quite high, isn't it, by now? Yeah. So the Merkavas, they have literally exceeded 100 from the beginning of the war until now. Over the past 72 hours until basically last night, early Friday morning, they had hit over eight Merkavas and uh, we're talking about no less than six armored vehicles and transportation vehicles for military. So um, that, that shows you the amount of losses that the Israelis are sustaining. Each Merkava is about $3.5 million. And we know that basically uh, after four weeks uh, of the fighting, the Israelis had to withdraw the Generation 5 Merkavas because they proved uh, to have lots of weaknesses, including their body. Their armor wasn't standing, uh, uh, it didn't stand a chance in front of the Yassin, locally manufactured Yassin 105 uh, bombs. Um, those are, they resemble the, basically the RPGs at one point or another, and they can inflict serious harm against uh, the bodies of the Merkava, which can insinuate one of two things. Either the Israelis were lying about the specifications of their Merkavas, or they used cheaper material in terms of their armor. And either way, if they sell it to any other country, it will be a loss for that country, by the way. And that's why they had to pull out the Generation 5 and introduce the older generation, G4, basically, of for the Merkava. And um, so far, it's also sustaining losses. However, the Generation 4 Merkava is more agile on the ground because it's lighter than the Generation 5. Okay, so just based on that, and uh, other military commentators have made this assessment, Leila, I don't know if you agree or not, just based on the amount of tanks that have been taken out of action and their fighting vehicles, um, th th you have to estimate that the loss of soldiers is going to be well in excess of a thousand, if you just base on the ratio uh, of, of how many vehicles have been lost. I mean, what are we looking at here in terms of the last eight weeks, uh, around 2000 Israeli soldiers killed? If we go with the, what, what the Israeli media is saying, they're talking anywhere between 3,000 to 7,000. Uh, uh, they're talking about death and injuries. Some people actually went up to say it's, it's around 10,000 injuries and 3,000 dead. I do believe basically that around uh, the weeks, week six, uh, if I remember correctly, because we were calculating it with our boots on the ground, we were stuck at 2,900 soldiers killed. And that's based on the funerals that were held and the families that were uh, informed of uh, their loved ones being killed. So 2,900, that's week six. Now we're in week eight. So you can imagine the number of deaths. It has surpassed about uh, 3,000 
by far. And when it comes to injuries, I do believe 10,000 is, is a, basically is a fair estimate if we're calculating also the those who were injured uh, in the attacks against Tel Aviv and uh, uh, Ashkelon and other uh, areas as well. So are they, I mean, based on that, if that's the case, um, you know, in terms of trained, so what are they doing? Are they holding back their best uh, forces? Because I know that the Ukraine did this uh, for quite a long time. They're not. I mean, the Israelis used their, their elite forces, their nine elite forces uh, since the beginning of the war on, on Gaza. They thought this was going to be a piece of cake. It's going to be a picnic. And it proved otherwise. They started with the mercenary along with the nine uh, elite teams and they lost. And then they started shoving basically the, the young ones. So you had the untrained Gulani uh, team, for example, uh, yesterday, like 24 hours ago, you had 10 soldiers from the Gulani being killed. And those were aged 18 to 25. And I actually wrote a, Twitter, a tweet about it, that um, the Israeli command ship is sending the young ones to die. They don't care anymore. Do you know why basically they're sending the young ones? Because even the veterans, they staged a mutiny at one of uh, the barracks. They refused to go and serve in Gaza. Most of the reserves, they had uh, basically uh, some uh, strikes in the barracks. So that pushed the Israeli government to return them. Basically, they relinquished about 70% of their reserves and returned them back to normal life, as they say because of the economy and other matters, but this is not true. It's because they staged mutiny across the barracks that they were in. They didn't want to go and serve uh, on the northern front or in the, on the southern front. So they didn't want to fight with Hezbollah. They didn't want to fight with uh, Hamas. And don't forget one thing, that the Israeli military is not well trained for such a war. They use technology. They use their air force. They sit behind the armored vehicles, but they're not used to the combat one-on-one. -on -one. And we've seen it before in 2006 in Lebanon, and now we're seeing it again in in, um, uh, in Gaza. They're not well equipped, or they're not. No, no, they were. They are well equipped, but they're not well trained to fight man to man. Point zero. They're always using losing at point zero, and when they go into ambushes, they don't know where to go. According to one of the Hamas fighters who spoke to our boots on the ground, he literally said, "The moment that they hear us coming." They're turning around and running away. And most of the videos that you see that the Israelis use, some of them are fabricated. So no, when, they, when they're basically fighting and they show that basically they won against somebody from Hamas, usually those are staged fights to show that they basically they killed two Hamas fighters in, a, in an empty building. Whereas it's the other way around. Hamas has been ambushing uh, uh, Israeli uh, elite forces in buildings and killing them. And the footage has been released. On a daily basis, we see th those footage, raw footage, unedited footage. Whereas the Israelis always issue uh, edited footage as well. For example, as well, do you remember when the Israelis said that they control uh, 40 to 45% of Gaza? And they went out mm -hmm. and showed satellite images and said they can't control 40%, otherwise they would have all been dead. They can't hold the ground. What they did is basically they stayed um, north uh, next to the fence, basically in Bet Lahia and Bet Hanun. Uh, when it comes to uh, central Gaza, they tried their best to stay next to the fence in the agricultural areas. That's basically a large strip of land where you can see beyond two to three kilometers ahead of you. So basically, nobody can uh, can block your view. This is where they're stationed, not inside Gaza. And when it comes to the south, there is no presence. They tried several times to do incursions and they failed. And what proves my point is that around 700,000 Palestinian civilians continue to live in North Gaza, including in Jabalia, which is being bombarded by the Israelis from, from the air. And at the same time, you still have action done by Hamas against resistance work against um, the Israeli occupation in Beit Hanun and Beit Lahia. Today, for example, Hamas was actually fighting up north, utmost north of Gaza, the Gaza Strip, in Beit Hanun and Beit Lahia. 
and they were actually winning on the ground because the Israelis sustained several losses over there. And the other thing people have, uh, this might be a little bit controversial for some people to, to comment on, I don't think so, but um, early on, I'm talking about, Layla, uh, the first uh, four to six weeks, um, when you saw the photos and all as well, when you had Netanyahu, uh, Gallant, and you know, when photographed with Israeli soldiers, what, what people were commenting on was they were saying they're all dark faces. In other words, they look like Bedouins, there were Druze, there were, you didn't see any white faces. Um, or early on. I don't know if you noticed this as well, but a lot of people commented on this. Um, what can you say to that? Because um, they do have a, a, a lot of different mercenary uh, components to the IDF where they pay people who wouldn't normally want to fight, but they're so desperate for money. I know there's quite a few Bedouins um, as well in that in that category. Um, so so what about that? Is is this a case of there's a lot of people that have left the country because they they want to avoid the war and they, they tend to be more wealthy, uh, more so European descent? What, what can you tell us about that dynamic? Uh, well, I can tell you that uh, from the Israeli society, I'm going to use their words, not mine, 152,000 Israeli citizens, not civilian citizens, most of them basically they, they were supposed to serve in the reserves and they didn't, left the country one way ticket, they're not coming back. That's a major loss for, for, for a society that basically is trying to bring people from across the world with the promise of the promised land that's secure for them. That's one thing. The other thing is that when we when I saw um, Galan, Gantz, and uh, Benny Gantz, and uh, uh, the Benjamin Netanyahu, Milikowski, by the way, his last name is Milikowski, they changed it to Netanyahu. So uh, David, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu actually knew that he was caught on his lies. They all looked like they were going to a funeral. They're all wearing black shirts. Uh, they're all sitting there like with gloomy faces. And they had sustained heavy losses during those, uh, when they, those pictures at the time when those pictures were taken. So they looked like basically they were look, going into a massive funeral that they had lost the, their own souls at one point or another. And as you said, they looked so gloomy. Uh, but that's only because one, they're losing on the ground. They didn't expect it to be this hard for them in Gaza that they have the, the strip that they had put under siege for 16 years could last for 70 days. That's unfathomable for them. And the third thing is that they are losing people and they are losing the media game. So they try to ramp up on their media and we were debunking that media on a daily and weekly basis. So they couldn't win. And one of the things that uh, I'll tell you about, remember when they actually showed the videos of them putting flags across the beach in Gaza? That was only for half an hour because they couldn't stay there for more than half an hour. They shot the video, then they left. If they stayed for more than that, then surely you can expect basically most of those soldiers would have been killed at the time. So they shoot wherever they go, they shoot videos, and then they leave directly. And then insinuate that they are actually in control of the land. Whereas when Hamas actually goes and fights the next day in that same area, it proves that they are actually lying. They're not on, on all of that ground. That's one thing. Um, the other thing is that uh, uh, the funerals, they, they have to speak to the families and the families are refusing to speak to the officials now. Remember those who were uh, uh, released by Hamas? What did they tell Netanyahu? It's like they, they were blaming Netanyahu for every single thing that happened on the ground, including leaving people behind and refusing to negotiate over the, 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 the detainees. And they blamed him for the deaths that happened to them. They said, we were not afraid of Hamas killing us. We were afraid of the Israelis killing us. So, I mean, for, for me, I mean, I think, I do believe that they are not uh, announcing uh, their death. It's, 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 uh, it's a massive burden on them because the moment they announce the actual numbers, 
the whole of the inter uh, the the national uh, public opinion, as you call it, uh, within Israel, would go and wipe them out. They will they, they will march into the gallows, and they cannot retreat from Gaza at the moment when they're losing on the ground. They need at least one victory to take back to their people on the ground uh, inside Israel and say like, look, at least we secured one to three. So far, they don't have that. That's why they issue fabrications. And that's why basically they rounded up civilians from Jabalia and other areas in North Gaza, stripped them naked, and then basically portrayed them as if they're, they're Hamas fighters holding rifles. I mean, for God's sake, if you are actually going to catch a Hamas fighter, would you leave the rifle with them after you strip them naked? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that was the most stupid video I've ever seen. And they took two shots of that video each time they made the person hold that rifle in a different hand. And we got both versions of that propaganda. I mean, I don't know what they're banking on, but they lost that media game as well. So there's nothing, there's no bullets left for them to fight on the international arena. They lost the public opinion across the world as well. So we talked about uh, casualties, deaths on the uh, IDF, the Israeli or IOF, IDF, Israeli side. And then what about on the uh, Palestinian resistance side? Because this is actually important because the whole premise of the Israeli operation is that they're taking out Hamas. But I have not seen, unless you can correct me, Leila, I have not seen an Israeli list or a manifest of high-value Hamas targets that have been killed, neutralized, or captured. So does have they captured or killed any? If so, how many? And think of this in proportion with this claim that Hamas is using the civilians as human shields. Well, if they're not killing any Hamas militants, then they can't be using the civilians as human shields. So what, what is the, what's the truth of it? Well, uh, I want to start with the most recent information that uh, made us laugh and cry at the same time as journalists covering the uh, atrocities that the Israelis are committing on the ground. Um, the Israelis actually went out on the record to confess that they are targeting civilians. You had Jonathan uh, Kornikus, who's the IDF, uh, IOF uh, spokesperson, came out two days ago in an interview and he said, three days ago, he said, uh, for every two civilians we kill, there's one Hamas. So if you have 20,000 people, almost 20,000 people killed at the moment on the ground, then basically that surely means basically one third of, like half of them are basically Hamas, which is not true. Because, I mean, Hamas are still fighting on the ground. It's like, what's the army of Hamas? 30,000? 20,000? So basically, you're taking out 10,000, and they continue to, to launch all these salvos and fight on the ground on a daily basis and basically uh, come back victorious every night to their tunnels. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but I can tell you one thing. Boots on the ground, again, they put the, the estimates from inside Gaza, um, those who were killed that are militants, at around 2,300 to 3,000 people. That includes people who were killed basically in airstrikes by mistake while they were checking out on their families. So the idea is that 2,000 out of 20,000, 20, that's a normal number. That's definitely not 40%. As Kornikos uh, at one point, he said 40%, then he said 2 to 1. Live on the record, he said that. So the Israelis, while trying to, to, to inflate the number of Hamas killed by them, they actually co confess to killing civilians and targeting civilians as well. So um, I don't know when it comes to Israelis, their, their numbers every single time, they're contradictory. They don't confess to a certain number. And whenever they have a media interview, they just dig their grave even further. Yeah, yeah, the, the numbers just don't add up. I also saw there was doctors that have been captured. They stripped them naked. They photographed them and claimed that they were medical professionals uh, from Gaza, claiming that they're Hamas fighters. 
It's not only yeah. in Gaza, they did the same thing to Al-Shifa Hospital in uh, Jenin in the, in the West Bank, in the occupied West yeah. Bank. They actually surrounded a hospital in the West Bank, which is supposedly under the Palestinian Authority. It's the occupied Palestinian territories. They targeted the medical staff over there, detained some of them. We don't know what happened to all of them. They haven't released all of them yet. And at one point or another, some of them were stripped naked during winter time at night. So you can imagine how cold it is. That's inhumane. That's against international humanitarian law as well. Amazing. Well, it's uh, not looking good there. We've got a couple minutes left. Uh, Ansu Allah have interdicted uh, not one, but two more ships. Quickly, we've just got uh, three minutes. If you can give us an update on this, the Yemeni resistance forces, what have they done uh, in the Babo Mendeb Straits and around the Red Sea? So uh, Ansarullah, uh, the Yemeni armed forces, has single-handedly managed to hamper a $42 billion maritime trade for the Israelis. And the Israelis basically are going nuts about it. They've ramped up the the, the insurance cost of maritime trade by hundreds of millions of dollars as well. And by targeting ships that don't have any ties with the Israelis but are going to Israel or coming back from there, doesn't matter the nationality, then basically they, they fit any type of maritime trade going back and forth to the, to, to the ports of uh, the Israeli ports. And what's funny is that what we saw yesterday and the day before um, Ansarullah targeted Marisk uh, Gibraltar uh, ship. It has zero ties with Israelis, but it was basically transporting uh, goods towards Israel. They refused to heed the, the orders of um, Ansarullah's uh, orders uh, to, to turn around away from Babel Mandab. And that's when basically uh, Ansarullah used a drone to hit that ship and uh, force it basically to, to come to them. And at the same time, forced two other ships to leave uh, the area and make the long turn of two weeks around Cape of Good Hope and around Africa all the way to the Mediterranean so they can actually reach the other side of um, the Israeli ports, including Port Haifa, which was bought by the uh, Indians not so long ago. So um, for, for that, I mean, uh, the, the British and the Americans considered this an act of uh, that breaches international law. However, under international law, Ansarullah had launched war against Israel. They announced it and they warned ships. So they gave ample warning and they're not targeting ships. They're giving them another route to, uh, to go uh, and use. So basically, they're shunning them any possibility of harm if they go through Babel Mandab to the Red Sea. So for me, under international law, I see it basically as, as they gave them another mean. It's not. It's neither an act of piracy and it's definitely not a, an act that breaches international law because they gave them ample warning and a route uh, away from uh, from danger. But they refused to listen to it, so they were hit. So it's basically, it's going to raise the cost of doing business uh, with Israel, basically. That's the final result, isn't it? The perishables are gone. They have to use airplanes to lift them, to airlift uh, the perishable, basically goods to, to, to send across the world. Don't forget 40% of Israel, sorry, 70% of Israel's trade happens by, by sea. That's $42 billion for you. 70% of Israel's trade happens by sea. That's completely hampered now. They can only trade via the Mediterranean, across all of Africa if they want to go to Asia. Otherwise, it's by airplane, and that means it's ramping up the cost, or they have to triple and even 10 times uh, pay basically the cost of insurance just to ship it uh, uh, around the world. And it's taking two to three more weeks, which means some perishables will be useless by the time they reach um, uh, the, merchant, uh, the merchants in another uh, area. 
and plus the cost of insurance. Don't even think about it. Uh, it's <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna make business uh, pretty much uh, unfeasible in that sense. Uh, listen, Leila Haitoum, a journalist based in Beirut. We really appreciate your updates uh, both on the South Lebanon front, but also on the Gaza front. And uh, be safe in your travels. And we hope to speak to you very soon. Thank you for your time. There she goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Leitha Hatoum. Follow her on X Twitter as well. We put a tag on her on our feed at 21Wire. If you're watching us on Twitter, you can access Leila's account there. The updates are priceless. That's where you want to be to get the information that you need. Top of the hour news headlines coming up. And on the other side, we're going to go back into the international news. Plus, we got everything legal in general in the United States with Matthew Lee on the ground in New York at the federal courts. Looking forward to that. All this and more. Stay with us.